Hello, and welcome to this podcast presented by the Southern Alberta Council on Public Affairs. We're about to start our SACPA session. Um, I see an awful lot of familiar faces, so I know you know the usual uh, drill where we're going to have our guest speaker uh, speak for 30 minutes, and then we'll have some lunch and hatch some questions, and at 1 o'clock we'll reconvene. Um, we would um, like to remind you that the lunch is not free, except for um, our guest speaker, Sandy, is getting a free lunch, but that's the least we could do. Um, so fill your baskets with the appropriate amount of money. Uh, remind you that SACPA is a volunteer not-for-profit organization, and it relies on contributions both of the members and uh, session attendees continue its work. Uh, memberships are available from Lisa, and we saw several people when you came in today renewing your membership, so that's great. Thanks to U of L for their support and distribution of notices. And um, by the way, th this session for the first time is being uh, done live. Welcome to the listeners to at CKXU the um, at the university. They're University radio station, it's ckxu.com on the internet or 88.3 on the FM. It had a test session last week and today it's available. So someday if you're at home and you can't uh, get here, then listen to the radio station and you'll get tuned in. So that's one of the ways U of L supports us. Um, what else here? Uh, we thank. Country Kitchen Catering for their yummy lunches, and Shaw TV for broadcasting sessions Sundays at 4.30, and the Lethbridge Media who do such fine uh, covering of SACPA events. So, without that, uh, those are all our housekeeping details for now. And um, just remind you, you like you read the flyer, that Sandy Aberdeen is from uh, Calgary. Um, he's been um, at the University of Calgary. He moved to the Environment Management Program. He completed the man Environment Management Program at U of C 16 years ago, so he's been a, a leader ahead of his time before some of these issues were really popular. Is popular the right word? Uh, before they were so urgent. Um, Sandy and his son started Calgary's first single-site urban farm, and he'll tell you what that means in a minute. He's recently completed a permacultural design course with Virga Verge, Verge? Verge Permaculture, and in August 2012 received training from Al Gore on climate change and related matters. So he's taking the environmental management program. He helps Sandy to understand environmental issues and challenges, and that's what he's going to speak to us about today, link all these things together. Without further ado, welcome, Sandy. Thank you. It is an honor and a pleasure to be here today to speak before such a well-informed group about a subject that I am passionate about. Uh, as Tom was saying, I was recently in San Francisco to take the climate reality training with Al Gore, and I was originally going to give that training, but I understand now that Marion and Robin White were here in February to give a, a similar training. And although there are some changes to the programs, pretty much the same thing. So I thought what I'd do this time is talk a little bit about 
uh, food security, basically food security and how climate change will have an effect on that. But before we go any further, um, the reason I'm here today, this is uh, our grandson, Ari. He's in, he doesn't look like that anymore, he's kind of changed a little bit. He lives in Singapore now. But I am concerned about his future, uh, so I want to try and make a difference here. So today's topics, just a few quick slides about the effects of climate change on food security, and then mitigation and adaptation. We'll talk a little bit about urban agriculture as well as permaculture. Time restrictions, it'll be, some of those slides will go by pretty quickly, but when we talk about mitigation and adaptation, often they'll overlap. Uh, you know, what you do to adapt will help mitigate and vice versa. Climate change will have an effect on all three dimensions of food security. Food availability, food access, and food access stability. So the ability to, to get food and basically hold on to that the stability access. That's the World Health Organization. Climate change. With climate change, we can expect two-thirds of the arable land in Africa could be lost by 2025. By 2030, climate change could push food prices up from up to from 50 to 90 percent more than they would other not otherwise be expected to rise. And we've already seen this starting to happen. Uh, worldwide, gr grain prices have gone up 30 percent in the last four months. So we're starting to see some of those effects already. By 2050, Calgary, Edmonton, Grand Prairie, and Fort McMurray are projected to experience degree days total similar to Lethbridge and Medicine Hat, present degree day total. So it's moving north, warmer. We can also expect overall to have a little bit more precipitation, and that sounds great. Great, we're going to have more rain. Unfortunately, according to the models, it's not going to be that steady, nice rain that we like. It'll be more rain events, so rain storms, if you will. So mitigation, what can we do to stop or slow down? Slowing down is probably what we're going to do. We're probably not going to be able to uh, stop the changes that are coming our way, but we can do whatever we can do, we must do, to try and slow these changes down. Now, farming practices, conservation practices, direct seeding, no-till farming, good fertilizer placement, all of those things, if we can adopt some of those things, we can have better, you know, reduced greenhouse gas emissions as well as benefit water, soil, and air quality. Now, if there's anybody that has direct experience with direct seeding or no-till farming, I would like to learn more about that. So come and see me at the break, and I would love to learn more about those things. I've heard some mixed reviews on those. Personal choices, reduce our carbon footprint and that of our businesses. Now, really, changing light bulbs is a good thing. You know, putting LED light bulbs is a good thing. Putting, you know, having your furnace, uh, an efficient furnace put in, doing, replacing your windows, uh, putting insulation in your roof, all of those things are good. And the return on investment of the ROI, it pays back 
fairly quickly. So it's a good investment financially. But in the long run, doing just that is not going to get the job done. We need to take other steps. But I do encourage you to, to do that for sure. And I know where I am when I'm saying this. Eat less meat. And this is going to be tough. It's tough for me because I really like beef. Specifically, beef that has a huge carbon footprint. And um, we would do well to not eat as much beef as we do, at least in, in my case. So I'm trying to make uh, steps to, um, to make those changes. Maybe some free range. Uh, another thing we could do is grow some of our own food. Uh, support local farmers' markets. Not only local farmers' markets, but anything local, really. We'd like to keep the money in, the, you know, around the, the town, right, and where it's uh, started. So those are a few personal choices that we can make to make a difference. Now, this particular one is, this thing I'm going to try to get over here. Uh, so become engaged. We need to let our leaders know how, what we think and how we feel, and we need to tell them. For instance, whoever has the best climate policy, those are people that we're going to vote for. If you don't have a good climate policy, then we won't vote for you. Julia Gillard, the Australian Prime Minister, has, was elected on her climate change policies. If only we could have that here. And we can if we stand up and let our leaders know what we are thinking. Otherwise, they won't. 350.org is a good organization started by Bill McKibben. Now, why 350? Uh, that is a very important number. 350 is a good number for atmospheric CO2 for the continuance of our uh, life and civilization, really, as we know it here on the planet. And then, of course, the little arrow there means that once they get to CO or 350, they're going to try and drop that down to 290. We passed 350 parts per million atmospheric CO2 in the 70s, and now we're at about 391 parts per million. And we're continuing to to put more CO2 into the atmosphere. We've managed to raise the temperature about one degree, and we have agreements to try and stop CO2 at 450 parts per million, and that will mean about two degrees overall warming. And at one degree, we've already seen some dramatic changes in our weather. So one of the things that we can do is get involved with 350.org. The they were going to build a pipeline from uh, the XL Keystone, I don't know if you remember that, from the tar sands in Fort McMurray down to the Gulf of Mexico, right over the Oglala um, Aquifer. Well, 350.org decided to organize a, a march on the White House. 10,000 people showed up. And these were what was really powerful about this is that these were, you know, when you think about protesting, you think about, in marches, you think about youth. In this case, a lot of guys like us, gray hair. I know some people that went down to that, and uh, 
it was really powerful to see senior citizens actually marching. So, and I think that made a difference because they have at least postponed that, that pipeline. So 350.org is a good one. Climate change reality, this is Al Gore's. And at this point, I would like to put in a good word for Lori Harmison, who is with us down in San Francisco. And she's from Colehurst. And so she's a, a local gal and uh, an excellent presenter. And if you're looking for climate reality presentations locally, uh, that's the connection right there. That's the Climate Change Reality Project. And then one that I learned about when I was in San Francisco, uh, this is the, climate, the Citizens Climate Lobby. And according to economists, if you want to reduce CO2 going into the atmosphere, you actually have to put a price on it. You have to put a dollar on it. And this organization has come up with a good way of doing that, and it's called a fee and dividend. So they charge the, person, the people that are producing it, and then, of course, those people are going to pass on the money, the charges to the individuals that consume it, and then a check goes from, the, from out to the people after. So I like to learn more about that and get involved with that one. So there are a few things that we can do to help along that way. But putting a price on carbon is a very important step. Well, that was a little bit about mitigation, and now on to adaptation. What are some of the things that we can do? This is the exciting part. This is the fun part. Perennial crops. About 10,000 years ago, uh, with, around what is now Iraq, our ancestors chose annual grasses uh, you know, they experimented with agriculture because they could collect the seeds from the hardiest and breed them for the next year's plot crop. However, now you can see here, uh, this is the annual winter wheat, the little one there, right here. This one. Uh, this one. The other one is the uh, perennial. And you see uh, significantly longer roots. Do you see the little arms at the end? That's like a woman's arms. And, and so that'll give you an idea of how long that root is. Um, this is good for a number of reasons. It helps to sequester CO2. It holds more water. It holds more fertilizer. The issue with the perennial grains now is that the, the yields aren't uh, anywhere near what the other ones are. But they are working to bring those yields up. And they're working with the DNA. We had a little interesting uh, talk last night at the dinner table about GMOs and uh, the effects that that may have on, on agriculture. But perennial corn may be field tested in as little as 10 years. That's an interesting development as well. So promoting biodiverse, agrobiodiversity is particularly important. Um, you know, Monocultures are good, and at one time I used to think the only way we're going to feed the world is to have huge tractors, you know, mass-producing food. And, uh, and I'm thinking now that perhaps to have a little bit more diversity locally makes a little more sense than monocultures uh, and then shipping them all over the world. Uh, once again, we need to relocal relocalize our economy, our energy, and our food supply. 
in a, in a warming plant climate, there are going to be impacts on all, all of those. Be prepared. Anybody was a Boy Scout here? Remember that? Renewable energy. So I'm not talking about spending thirty or forty or fifty thousand dollars to uh, you know put solar panels on your house uh, to p supply all the power. But what could be done uh, for relatively inexpensively uh, would be to put enough renewable energy, like a panel, to be able to keep your freezer going, to be able to power a microwave, and perhaps a computer so that you can stay connected. And I, I think there are going to be some shocks to the system coming, and so we should be prepared for that. And food storage. You may have, I just learned about this not that long ago, but the Mormon 4, wheat, powdered milk, salt, sugar, or honey. And, and apparently that, that can keep you alive. And I don't know how happy you'd be just eating that, but it will keep you alive. So I guess the point is that we should be starting to save food, have a reservoir of food on hand. It's pretty straightforward stuff when you're looking at uh, some of the changes that may be coming down the road. Also, fruit, food preservation, canning, that kind of thing, pickling. And I know there's a lot of people in this room that know how to do that. The younger generation, maybe not so much, but we really should be trying to help them learn how to do that. We should be passing those skills on. And, of course, water. You know, water's always an issue. When you talk food security, you can't talk food security without talking water and water harvesting techniques. There are, you can buy these 1,000-liter totes, and I'm going to get three of them for my, my house in Calgary, and, uh, and you harvest it off the roofs. Very, very easy thing to do. And water security is going to be something for sure. Now, I don't know if any of you have heard of this or not, but there are, there's a movement called Transition Towns. And Transition Towns is a grassroots network of communities that are working to build resilience in response to peak oil, climate destruction, and economic instability. This started in England a number of years ago and has spread around. There's some in Asia now. In Canada, there are some uh, transition towns in Ontario, Nova Scotia, and BC. And what they're trying to do is to move their economies away from a carbon-based economy. So there's a lot of trading and bartering going back and forth. They're, they're looking at their own energy systems and they're sharing knowledge in how to grow their own food. Transition towns, I think you're going to see more and more of those as we go forward. Urban agriculture. What is urban agriculture? It is the producing, distributing of food in an urban or peri-urban environment. So peri-urban is just outside the city, if you will, but close, right? Not that far away. This uh, was our little experiment, if you will. This is my son, Brendan. And he and I uh, farmed an eighth of an acre in northwest Calgary, in Tuscany. And we were able to acquire the land, the use of the land for a dollar a year 
from Karma, the developer. And we planted, you know, leafy greens and basically a market garden, uh, some onions, some carrots, um, beets, radish, that kind of thing. I must say the neighbors were very supportive. Uh, at first I thought we were going to get complaints, but they were, you know, neighbors, little kids on bicycles riding by. What are you guys doing? Right? And uh, they were quite supportive. So I, and I wish I could have been able to set up a stand right there to sell the produce. But sadly, uh, the city, uh, you're not quite there yet, right? It's not zoned for that, so couldn't do that. So we had 60 rows, 25 feet long, and the width of the rotor tiller, which was about 18 inches. And it's been and very low tech. And I'm sure that some of you in this room have used that Earthways cedar. It's a very low-tech way of seeding. And uh, we needed to get a permit. Uh, so it was like three or four trips down to the city hall because they didn't... They were trying to be supportive, and I have to give them that. They were very supportive. They just didn't know how to do it. So it went to council and back and forth. And, and finally, they came out with a list of things. You, you cannot park on the land. You cannot have music. You can, you know, all that stuff. And so, okay, and they, $150, and there's your permit. So... And we were able to get water from that house at the end. And uh, so that worked out pretty well for us. There's a lot of, there's getting to be more and more urban farmers in Calgary now. There's about, there's Leaf and Lair and there's uh, Leaf Ninjas. That's a pretty cool name. Some of those. And I'm wondering, maybe you can tell me at the break if there's any urban farmers here in Lethbridge. And I would like to introduce you to Curtis Stone from Kelowna. Now, Curtis Stone... Uh, does all his farming on a bicycle. He has made that trailer by himself, and he has a pretty good sense of humor, too. See, it says, let us rethink how to farm. Let us, R-R-R. Yeah. <clears throat> so an interesting fellow, he farms backyards. He has 10 or 15 backyards, 20, whatever he has. And he gives the people, you know, who don't want to farm their backyard, he gives them a portion of the goods, and then he goes and sells it at uh, community or yeah, community supported uh, agriculture farms. Uh, so he does that. And last, he did two. The first year he did okay, but the second year now he was able to grow sixty thousand dollars. So that's not bad. You know, your inputs are pretty low. I mean, how much fuel does that bicycle use? Right, and uh, he gets a rotor tiller. Okay, there's some gas involved in that, and his time. And it's a healthy job. And really, we could be producing a lot of jobs for for youth if we could get them to do that. Not only in backyards, we could start farming public spaces as well. Other options. Now, there's there's some. It gets a little bit weird here sometimes when you talk about other options. And these things are actually being planned. Uh, this is a vertical farm. The idea of this is to grow, harvest, package, compost in one building. Uh, this could be, and they're talking about animals as well, and these things would be horrendously expensive, you know, building a skyscraper for that kind of thing. But, uh, you know, it is an option, and maybe we'll get there someday. And then there are hydroponics and aeroponics. Now, most people know that hydroponics, rather than growing in soil, you're growing in a medium. So the root is in a medium, and then it's flooded with 
water that has nutrients in it. Aeroponics is the root is suspended and there's a mist that blows through with the nutrients in it. Um, the hydroponics is an easier system. The people that I've talked to that have aeroponics, although aeroponics, is, the yields are, are quite good. The, uh, they're quite finicky. Those systems are quite finicky uh, so far. But as you can see, with hydroponics, there's ways to grow and take advantage of vertical spaces and uh, those rotate around there so they can get sunlight and so forth. They can be quite prolific that way. And one that I really think is cool is <coughs> excuse me, aquaponics. So in aquaponics, you have fish in a tank underneath and often tilapia. And what happens is the, the fish effluent uh, is pumped up and feeds. The nutrients are fed to the plants above. So you can see the, the fellow there holding the plants above. What they're starting to do now is they put rabbits in there, and the rabbit, uh, rabbit dung, if you will, drops into the water, and then the tilapia eat that. Uh, so it's kind of a closed-loop system. And with the waste that we have in our food systems in cities, we could certainly feed rabbits. I don't know if anybody's ever had rabbits, but they really don't eat that much, you know. And they're pretty prolific, prolific too, so we could have meat, we could have fish, and we could have pro uh, produce. So those are some interesting things. And talking to Tom now, there are some of this happening here, rooftop gardens. This is Bright Farms out of New York City. Uh, they are doing rooftop gardens, so they are have greenhouses above the supermarket, and they grow hydroponically, and then they sell to the supermarket below. And it's a pretty good. Now, apparently, they're all they're starting one of these in Montreal, and you know, this Montreal is not New York. It's quite a bit colder in, in Montreal, so it'll be interesting to see how they make out with that. But really, you cannot get anything fresher than that. It grows on the roof, and then it's down into the uh, into the store below. And there's another bunch of benefits there that uh, that you can read later. Uh, so we do need to be growing everywhere, walls, balconies. Uh, this particular, that those brown things or gray things are actually felt, and you can grow, you put water in there, grow things like spinach uh, on a vertical space. Um, balcony containers. Now, global buckets, I don't know if you've heard of those. I've made a bunch of them, and they work really, really well. You see that balcony there that's full of global buckets. And it's a self-watering system made out of some, some old five-gallon buckets. And the bottom one is a reservoir for water. And it wicks up into the soil. And they work great. Uh, they've been used a lot in Africa. And those are, uh, I highly endorse those. I, the, they've been really good for me. So permaculture. Just uh, a couple of quick slides about permaculture. Uh, started in Australia. It's grown worldwide, and it's permanent culture or permanent agriculture. So the people that started it in Australia weren't happy with the uh, food system, the way it was going, and how conventional farming was damaging the soil, so they came up with a different option. There are permaculture principles, which I won't read. This is your opportunity to multitask. You can read this, and I can keep talking, and that way I can save some time. Because apparently I'm running out of time. 
<clears throat> in more ways than one. So swales, this is one of the things that we have uh, permaculture, and it's really interesting because what it does is it takes advantage of the water that's coming down a hill, you dig a little hole, and then that pile where you dig goes on the south side or the downside of the hill, put crushed gravel in there, it holds the water, and then the water percolates down into the ground and feeds the plants. They've done some amazing things in Jordan, which is one of the driest countries in the world, using swales. What you want to do with water is slow it down, spread it out, and sink it. And this is one of the things that swales will do. And just coming to the last couple of slides here, the northern climate greenhouse. I don't know if you've seen these or not, but uh, they're popular in China. And they're getting to be more and more popular here. The north wall is basically not open at all. And often they put barrels of water there to hold thermal mass. And then during the day, and then at night, they roll the blanket down on top. And that keeps the uh, heat in. And then thermal mass re releases out from the water. So those are some of the things that we can do. And now, just quickly, uh, the reading list. I have a reading list. See, I know you guys read. Now, this is the Post-Carbon Institute, the Post-Carbon Reader. It's a great book. Some of the uh, chapters in here, water security chapter, and there's another one on growing community food systems. Uh, getting fossil fuels off the plate is another, another subject there, or another um, um, chapter. And then there is... The Leap. Chris Turner is a Calgary author. And what I like about this is it's very positive. When you start learning all the things that are going on with the environment, you can, it's really easy to get depressed, right? But this is a very positive book, and it, it's showing examples of how people are making a difference now, specifically in European countries like Germany and Denmark. And finally, the final book is Food Security for the Faint of Heart. And what this is about is basically, it's a, it's a, what am I calling it here? It's a survival guide. Basically, it tells you how to do, you know, uh, canning and what are some of the benefits of using salt to preserve and, uh, and vinegar and all those things. So I know that a lot of you people know that, but this is a, a, good, a good book to have if you were uh, looking at securing your food supplies. So to close, final thoughts. You can make a difference. You can't do it alone. Social capital become more and more important as time goes on as we move into a warming climate. And food security will be affected. We need to work together to help with our food security. And the secret ingredient to sustainability is community and do something. We are a social being, you know, a highly, a highly evolved uh, social being, and we really need to work together. Uh, and I think that we could be transitioning into something that's better than what we have now. Thank you.